even also on behalf of ourselves as well. And so um, during this time, I always, uh, you know, like to mention and just as a reminder that even though there may be someone up here praying in front of you, that does not preclude you from praying yourself, right? Uh, so we, we can pray some general things and some general types of blessings and some um, situational kinds of, of ways we want the Lord to move that we know are common to all people, uh, but only you know what it is that you need from the Lord. Um, and only you know, in some cases, what even your family needs from the Lord, whoever you happen to be interceding on behalf. So uh, we do this corporate prayer as an opportunity, uh, not for hopefully the person up here to hit every need that you have, but to really just bring us into the mindset and into a spirit of worship and of prayer, of petitioning, of supplication to our Lord. Uh, Paul says that we should be praying at all times without ceasing. Uh, and sometimes you think, man, that just doesn't even seem feasible. But then when you think about all that we really need the Lord to move and to be involved in, you see why Paul says pray without ceasing. Because there's a lot going on. So at this time, I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I would ask you just to, to be thoughtful and to be uh, intentional even in your own mind as we go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you and praising you for who you are, for who you have been, and for who you are being, and who we trust and know and believe you will continue to be. God, I'm so grateful and thankful that who you are is not dependent upon how I respond to you. That regardless of what this last week looked like for me in terms of my Christian walk, you remain faithful. You remain full of love, full of kindness, full of gentleness and righteousness and grace and mercy, patience, protection and provision. God, I'm so grateful that you don't decide how you're going to bless me based on how I acknowledge you. but you are true to yourself, to your name. You are bound by your word. And for that, I say thank you. Now, God, as we have come together in this place to fellowship together, to worship together, to hear a word from you together, we know that we come, some, with heavy hearts, with burdens, with concerns, with things that threaten to take our attention away from you this morning. Some of us are on the edge, God, waiting for you to do and to be all that you said you would do and be in your word and looking around wondering when they will experience that. Some of us are on the edge, God, believing that if they don't hear from you today, that they're going to go their own way. That if they don't have an encounter with you on today, that they are going to take matters into their own hands. That they will continue trying to work it out the best that they can, trying to make their own way out of no way. Some God are here, not knowing which way to turn. Seeking wisdom. Seeking guidance on what to do on their job, on what to do in their marriage, on what to do with their children, on what to do in their uh, career. God, they're looking for a word from you this morning. And God, we come now collectively, not knowing the specifics of what the person to the left and to the right in front or in back of us is asking for, but knowing this, as the choir sang, that you are able you are able, God, to move in each and every situation. You are able, God, to do and to be abundantly more than we think or than we ask. You are able, God, to make ways out of no ways. You are able to open doors that have been closed. You are able, God, to be a bridge over troubled water. You are able, God. To settle us down. You are able, God, to stand us up, to strengthen us, to encourage us. You are able. So, God, it is in that 
that we plant our flag, that we draw the line, that we stand, not on a certain outcome, but on the fact that you are able. It is in your strength. It is in your power. It is in your authority, God, that we find our confidence. And however you decide to move in our lives, God, we know that it will be for what is best. Because you are a sovereign God, seeing the end from the beginning, knowing intimately in great detail what it will take to bring about glory to your name in all of our situations. So God, even as we have those things, let us test you, lay them at your feet, exchange your burden for ours, God. And even now, clear from our minds those things that would threaten to distract us so that we can hear clearly what thus saith the Lord. God, I pray that as we turn to your word, that a light would shine not only on your word, but on our lives. And that in doing so, you would show us where we need you more. Where we need to incorporate you more into our lives, into our thoughts, into our actions, into our desires. God, encourage us, strengthen us by the power of your word. And as your word goes forth, let it do what only you can do through it. And that is make sure that it does not return to you void. But that it accomplishes all that you sent it forth to accomplish. Lastly, God, I pray that you would sit me down. That you would preach this message. That you would communicate to your people. That you would be glorified. That they would see you in all that is said and all that is done. And all who not only agree but all who expect to have an encounter with the living God this morning, let them say amen. 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 Well, good morning, solid word. And, and uh, look, at the uh, risk of, of being beat up after church, let me make sure I handle this for Cletus. Cletus said to make sure I let the 6th, 7th, and 8th graders know that you are dismissed uh, for youth church. And so if there are any 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, you can follow Mr. Cletus and Miss Carey out. Amen. All right. Well, as always, I am uh, excited to stand before you this morning and to share God's word with you. Uh, always appreciative to pastor for the opportunity to preach and to share in this awesome responsibility with you guys, and uh, grateful and thankful to my wife, to my daughter Hannah, and to my daughter Jayla, who last time got on me because she's off at college, and I didn't mention her name, and she said she felt like she just wasn't a part of the family anymore. <laughs> Jayla, thank you. That one's for her. Yeah. Amen, yeah, amen. But look, we, we are continuing in our study of Colossians today, and, and today we're going to be dealing with Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 18. I am going to grab a little bit of 17, but that's just to kind of set us up, and then into chapter 4, verse 1. And the lesson aim for this morning is, obviously the overarching aim for the series has been for us to get a really good picture, right, a really good picture of, of what it means and what it looks like when a life has been fully has been holy, has been completely submitted to the supremacy of God, of the supremacy of Christ, more specifically. And then today, the lesson aim for this sermon is for us to see what it looks like, right, in the life of a believer when the supremacy of Christ has been internalized. Internalized. Um, so <coughs> let's, let's turn now to the scripture, if you would. And similar to last time, what I, what I want you to do is mark in your Bibles everywhere you see the word Lord. Okay, <coughs> As we read through this, I'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, and there you will find these words. And whatever you do, starting in verse 17, and whatever you do, do <coughs> in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Amen. <coughs> By way of just a quick introduction and, and, and setting of an example, it is not a secret to any of you guys who have known me for a while that I am a diehard Tennessee Titans fan. It's it's all good. It's all good. I can take it. Right now, the Tennessee Titans are the hottest team in the NFL. That's all right. I got the mic. They won't hear your grumbles on the podcast. They won't know. They think everybody's agreeing with me. But I love my Tennessee Titans. I've got Tennessee Titans shirts and jerseys and uh, pictures and, and signage, and I've got, I, I don't even understand why, but you know those little yard troll things, there's a tennis, I've got one of those. A Tennessee Titan yard gnome is what they call them, right? I've got my whole basement is painted in blue, Tennessee Titans. Karen, let me do that. The one place that if you come visit, unless you are intentionally brought down there, you will never see. <laughs> she said, I could paint it as Titans blue. There's a bed in the basement that is all Titans. It has, you know, Titans bread spread and pillowcases and all of the like. I've got a chair in my office that's a Titans chair. I like the Titans. I have even gone as far, right? Not only do I have Titans jerseys, but my wife, my daughters have Titans jerseys. Because I'm a Titans fan. The house is a Titans fan. That's our team. But and, and look, at 1 o'clock today, I'm going to go home, and I am going to watch them play the New Orleans Saints. Like every Sunday I do, I want to watch them play. When they play on Monday night football, I love that. When they play on Thursday night, I'm going to watch that. But something became clear to me, Brother Charles, that despite how much I love the Tennessee Titans, despite all the things that I have in my house that are Titans-geared, right, Despite even having bought jerseys and paraphernalia for all of the family that's related to this love for the Tennessee Titans, when it comes time to watch the game, I'll be by myself. (laughs) I extend invitation after invitation. Hey, the Titans are playing today. Anybody want to watch with me? Everybody finds something else to do. And, and, and so I, I it, but it doesn't keep me from watching. I'm going to watch, and I'm going to watch, and, and when I watch, I watch loud. I want to feel like I'm there, Brandon. I, I, look, it, I, I would almost, I'd almost ask somebody to spill a drink on my shoulder. Just make me feel like I'm in the, I'm in the stadium. I want it loud, and I'm going to be loud. And when I get loud, I, I run and tell them. You, you'll never believe what it was, thinking that if they could just get a glimpse of how exciting it could be, they would then want to come and watch it with me. I run up there and say, you should have seen the stiff arm Derrick Henry just put on something. Oh, (laughs) that's good. And they keep on doing what they're doing. And it became so obvious to me, so obvious that even though, despite my best efforts to indoctrinate my love for the Tennessee Titans into my entire family, that they have not internalized loving the Tennessee Titans like their dad has. Oh, they'll smile and nod when I'm talking about them. When I tell them that we won again, they'll say, well, that's great. But when it comes time to sitting and watching them, 
play after play, moment after moment, dissecting and, and, and just enduring what it takes to be a fan and to watch the actual game, I find myself all by myself. They haven't quite internalized that. And look, this, this is light. This is lofty. As, as just an anecdote, last week my heart was overfilled with joy because I got a text from Jayla, my daughter, who actually had taken a picture of the TV screen and it showed the Titans game, had texted to me and said, I'm watching the game. I said, raise up a child in the way they should go. <laughs> but it was interesting because she said this. Uh, she texts back a little bit later. This was the game against the Rams. And she said, this is a really good game. And I texted. I said, I know. This is what I've been telling y'all all these years. Yeah, I'm not just down here just staring at a screen. This is a good game when you get into it and you care about the outcome. The game becomes interesting, entertaining. You, 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 I mean, we were texting back through the whole thing. Did you see that? Yes, I saw that. That was amazing, right? And it made me think about what we're getting into here because it is about internalizing the supremacy of Christ. We have been for weeks upon weeks upon weeks giving you information about the supremacy of Christ. Giving you talking points, handouts, slides, podcasts, videos about the supremacy of Christ. But it will not make not a bit of difference. I know there's double negatives in there. If you do not internalize you will be like my loving family. Yes, Titans, great, awesome. I'll even wear a jersey every now and then, but when it comes time to get on the field, I'll, I got, I'll find something else to do. Hmm. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. Paul's letters follow a very uh, common and similar pattern. He lays out a lot of theology and doctrine at the very end. And then he comes at the, at, at the very beginning, rather, and then he comes at the very end with a lot of imperatives, a lot of commands. In other words, he's saying, look, because of all of this, this is how you should be. If you believe all of this, this is how it should show up in your lives. The converse is true. If you don't have this showing up in your lives, then it should cause you to question, what do you believe? And not just what we believe, but what have we now allowed to seep into our hearts, to move from our heads to our hearts? I, I think that uh, starting with uh, the verse 17 is a good place to start because it, <clears throat> it, it kind of serves as a transition into this next part. So to provide just a little bit of context, right, let's reach back and let's think about <coughs> what it is that uh, Paul has been talking about. And like I said, verse 17 serves as a summary statement for the previous section, but it also serves as a transition into these next verses. Paul says that because of everything we've been talking about up until now, what is it that we've been talking about up until now? Well, because of the gospel. The whole gospel producing fruit in the lives of the Colossians because of the awesome reality of who Jesus is, namely that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is the firstborn of all creation. He is the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created. He is the one who is before all things and he is the one who holds all things together. He is the one who is the head of of the church. He's the firstborn of the dead. He is the one in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Because the Colossians should live and walk in that Christ alone, abandoning the ways of the world, the human traditions, and the empty philosophies of men, not chasing after man's wisdom or religious shadows and ceremonies that were meant to point to Jesus. But instead, they should be united with Jesus 
in his death and his resurrection to new life because they are no longer seeking after the things that are here on earth, but they are now fixing their minds on things that are above and then living like their minds are fixed on things above. Paul says that this new lifestyle that is born in and out of this life in Christ is marked by love, it's marked by unity, it's marked by peace, and it's marked by a focus on Christ. And it must manifest itself in whatever we do, whatever we say. Everything must be done in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, it must be done. What we do, what we say must be done in a way that is consistent with Jesus' character. It is consistent with Jesus' reputation and would have his approval. Paul, having said all that now up to this point, that's a real condensed version of, of Colossians 1 through 3, gets up now and then he says, look, in light of all of that, let me now zero in on the home to provide a tangible, real-life example of what a new life that has been submitted to the supremacy of Christ looks like. So let's walk through these verses. And look, <clears throat> I always joke with Pastor that somehow, someway, I always get these verses about submission and, and husbands and wives and things like that, but we're just going to wade on into it. And if you're mad at anybody, take it up with Paul. <clears throat> so now, right, it is with that context, it is with the supremacy of Christ as the context, the supremacy of Christ as the focus, as the impetus, as the, 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 the reason why that Paul then turns and says to the wives in verse 18 to instruct them to be submissive, to be subject to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I know that this can rub some of us the wrong way. I get it. The idea that in our current day and age with all of our modern sensibilities, all of the gains that have been made from the perspective of diversity and inclusion, from the world's viewpoint, the fact that we are even still talking about submission is, is, is I'm sure, causing some to feel a certain kind of way in the world. But even for some of us in the church, we may have struggled or even may be struggling right now with this idea of submission being uh, 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 applicable today. Whether it's a general biblical principle or more specifically uh, applied to the marriage relationship. And I'm not surprised and I'm really not concerned about the reaction of the world. That's to be expected. Paul tells us in Romans 8 and 7 that a worldly mindset is hostile has enmity towards the word of God. I, I don't understand why we get so bent out of shape when folks who do not claim to know Christ, don't claim to believe in God, do not claim that his word is true, all of a sudden don't follow his word. You, you about to stroke out for nothing. Right? Right? These folks have not said that it is the word of God. Paul tells us that the mind that is set on the world cannot do, cannot submit itself to God's word. So from the world's perspective, I get it. I get it. But remember, right, Paul's whole context here is a mindset that recognizes and acknowledges the supremacy of Christ. So he's not talking to everybody. He's talking to those who have said, yes, Christ is Lord. And Paul says, well, if Christ is Lord, this is how it's going to show up. Let's be honest. Most of us in our everyday lives, we submit to all sorts of people day in and day out. Kids at school submit to their teachers most of the time. People at work submit to their bosses most of the time, right? Look. Even at the drive-thru, I laugh about this, we submit to the little teenager at the window who tells us, uh, could you pull up? <laughs> uh, 
I'm going to go a step further. Despite the fact that in your mind you're telling yourself, next time, I'm going to tell them no. Everybody's just going to have to wait until I get my fries. But when that next time rolls around, what do we do? Uh, Spot one, is that where I need to go? Okay. Let me pull up. (laughs) But for Christians, right? Not in name only, but those who have truly been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves sometimes feeling rubbed the wrong way or stating or starting at least to feel a certain kind of way when submission comes up. It is likely because of one of two things. Either we don't have a truly biblical understanding of submission or when it comes to matters of submission, Like Paul said in Rome, we have a worldly mindset that taints how we receive. You do know that you can have worldly mindsets in certain areas of your life, right? I know we sometimes kind of think about that just in absolute terms, saved, not saved. But you can be fully saved and still be thinking worldly about certain things. And that verse is still true. It just says, it doesn't say whether you're saved or not. It just says that a mind that is set on the world can't submit to God's word. Your name can be in the Lamb's book of life, but if your mind is still worldly as it comes to finances, guess what you won't do? You won't submit to God's word. Hmm. <clears throat> and so I think, right, <clears throat> that uh, uh, we, we really need to get a, an accurate biblical understanding and presentation on submission. So let's frame biblical submission. First, I think it's important for us to note that Paul isn't talking about submitting to anyone to the point of disobedience to God's word. Oftentimes when we talk about submission, especially in marriage, people like to grab this extraneous uh, example about, well, what if they tell me to do and they insert some crazy thing? Well, the answer is don't do that. If it goes against God's word, that's not what's in mind here. But again, remember the context. The context is folks who say that Christ is supreme in their lives. Hopefully people who hear this, right, and think about this, this command to submit should make you really think about who you might marry one day because you know the requirement is to submit to them. So you want to be very careful about who it is that you're submitting to and then husbands on the other side, who it is that you are going to be loving as we get to that place. But Paul isn't talking about submitting to someone to the point of disobedience to God's word. And and we will see as we walk through this that everything he charges each member in the family to do has the caveat of either being pleasing to the Lord or fitting to the Lord. Now, submission is an action that has less to do with the object that's being submitted to and more to do with the one who's doing the submission. It is a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, carrying a burden. In the example that I gave, I submit to the teenager at the drive through window not because I'm inferior to them, but because in that environment, they have the authority even as a teenager. They have the authority. They are the ones who are controlling if I get my fries or not. And so I submit to them willingly. In the original Greek, we see that the word that is used here oftentimes is used in a military context. Hupotasso, which is a compound word. Hupo means under. Tasso means to arrange. And it's often used to describe the order, the structure, and military ranks. And you think about it, in the military, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get a unit of many to act as one, to accomplish an objective. Now, when it comes to wives submitting, husbands, hear me when I tell you this and let me help you out. You cannot make your wife submit to you. Husbands, yes, you understand. You cannot make your wives submit to you. Uh, You might be able to get them to do certain things a certain kind of way, but you cannot make them submit. This is a voluntary act of the will that is powered by the Holy Spirit. Now, husbands, we can create an environment that helps to facilitate our wives submitting. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But at the end of the day, it is a choice that wives must make on their own. 
And looking back at the text, this choice, Paul says, that wives make to submit is to be to their husbands. Mm -hmm. And I think what Paul is doing right here is he's making two subpoints underneath the larger context of submission because of Christ's supremacy. First, I believe that he is making it clear to men in general that, the, that this whole idea of submission only applies to a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Hear me when I say this. This is not a general statement of women everywhere submitting to men everywhere. But it is specifically instructions for men and women who have entered into the covenant relationship of marriage. Not we talking, not we kicking it, not we dating, not even we engaged. But it's not until we's married, y'all, that submission comes into play. Secondly, secondly, I believe that Paul is also warning wives on the other side to not be out here showing more respect, showing more deference, more honor, and more uh, submission to other men than you do to your own husband. Lastly, Paul places some boundaries and constraints on a wife's submission to their husband, namely the phrase, as is fitting in the Lord, meaning that a wife who submits to her husband is doing so in a means and a manner that is acceptable to the Lord and that doesn't go against the new life that she's trying to live in Christ to begin with. Again, always remember the context. This brings me to my very first question, and this question is for wives only. Wives, can others tell that Christ is supreme in your life, not by how often you go to Bible study, not by how many women groups you're in, not by how many retreats you go on, but by how you treat, respond to, and talk about your husband. Hmm. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, Husbands, if Christ is supreme in your life, then you will love your wife and not be harsh with them. Now, to our ears listening now, this doesn't sound so radical. And if we were honest, wives submitting seems like the heavier lift. That seems, the, the wives submit, man, that seems tough. Husbands of your wives, duh. It's kind of how we think about that. Hmm. But context is key. And this command that Paul is given is given against a backdrop of Greco-Roman society and culture. And it would have been indeed radical because at the time, the culture didn't expect husbands to love their wives. I know that, that sounds weird, right? Now, husbands may have loved their wives in some cases, but it was not the expectation. It wasn't what was a requirement. It, it wasn't, oh, you, you, you married so-and-so, you must be in love with them. No. She's a means to an end to bring me children, to take care of the home. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul is now writing into this culture, right? And he's telling them, husbands, if Christ is supreme in your life, you won't get down in your marriage relationship like the world gets down in the marriage relationship. But you're going to show up differently. This love is not simply a warm and fuzzy that has you husbands on February 13th in the aisles of Kroger looking for what's left. <laughs> You've given your wife some Snoopy card because you done waited to the last minute. <laughs> oh. But if we look back at verse 14 earlier in the chapter, chapter 3, Paul says that because of this new life that they have in Christ, the Colossians should practice love, not because love is all you need or, and all these kind of things we talk about, but because love is actually a bond of unity. Hmm. In other words, Paul is telling husbands now very specifically, if Christ is supreme in your life, 
then you will allow his love to flow through you towards your wife. And doing so will increase the bond of unity that you have, the oneness that you have with your wife. So much so, hear me husbands, so much so that when you see her, you see yourself. You can't think about her apart from thinking about yourself. What makes her happy now makes you happy. What makes her sad now makes you sad. You, you get what I'm saying here, right? So husbands, you should now be asking yourself, what does this kind of love look like? Because if it don't look like Friday the 13th in or, or February 13th in Kroger's Isle, help me raise my game. And since we know, right, that Paul has written other letters about the same themes, we look at Ephesians 5 and 25 where Paul says to husbands in the same way, husbands love your wives. But I love this, I love this, I love this, what Paul does. He doesn't leave it there so that then we get to go run and define what that means. But Paul says, as Christ loved the church. It's not an open-ended invitation, husbands, for us to define love. Well, I work every day. I bring home my check. That proves that I love you. It's not what Paul says. He says to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, we do not have enough time to go into this as deeply as we could and should. But suffice it to say, and we all know this, that Christ loved the church sacrificially. Meaning. That husbands, if we're not loving our wives sacrificially, then we are not loving them like Christ loved the church. If we're not placing our wives' needs above ours, we're not loving our wives as Christ loved the church. If we're not placing our wives' concerns above ours, we're not loving our wives as Christ loved the church. To love our wives sacrificially involves an unceasing care and loving service for her entire well-being. Now ask yourselves, husbands and wives too, what kind of woman would not submit to a husband that's doing that? You have an unceasing care and loving service for my entire well-being? Well then, I submit. Where you go, I go. I will follow. But Paul doesn't stop there. And he continues by commanding husbands not to be harsh with their wives. This is an interesting pairing. Love your wives, husbands. Do not be harsh towards them. And it carries with it the idea of exercising their authority their headship that has been ordained by God and also established in society in an oppressive manner. Hear me when I say this. This can be done physically. It can be done mentally. It can be done verbally. It can be done emotionally. And none are acceptable to God. Husbands, I like how Peter describes the wife in 1 Peter 3 and 7. If you don't know this verse, you need to write it down in the whole context. It's, it's, it's beautiful. But he says, for husbands to show honor to their wives as the weaker vessel. Now, before folks start getting upset and, and, and angry about, oh, wait a minute, I'm equal. But no, listen, the notion of weaker vessel isn't a statement of inferiority, ladies. But it's more a reminder to the husband that he should be gentle, that he should be tender, that he should be kind and loving when dealing with his wife. Just like you would be if you were holding something that was valuable and fragile. The weaker vessel. Husbands, this question is for you. Can others tell? That Christ is supreme in your life by how you love and how you treat your wife. Not because you signed up for the men's book study. Not because you listened to Tony Evans. Not because you're a kingdom man. 
but because of how you love and treat your wife. <laughs> Verse 20. Paul keeps moving through the household, right? And he addresses now children. And I know we dismiss some of them, and it's okay. And, uh, but I really like this, that he, he, he deals with children. Because sometimes... Today, we feel like this new life in Christ is something that we are only supposed to do and start living once we get older. Hmm. That kids can't quite get it yet. They, they, you know, kids will just be kids and, and, and they've got time to get it right. And these concepts are difficult, but, uh, it, you know, they, they, there's time for them to get serious about Christ later on. And I'm talking not as a parent just looking back as a child. I'm talking as one who has been a child. That this is sometimes the way we think about children in the church. <laughs> or that we can just give them little cute things about Christ. Little things that rhyme and, and little coloring things. And I'm not knocking that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But, but what I am saying is, is that if we, if we give them all of that and then expect them to be disciples when they grow up, we should be discipling from the moment that they accept Christ, which means that we're dealing with what it means to walk in Christ, right? And so Paul says that. Paul says <clears throat> that once we start living this new life, that it, it, that it reflects what Christ, that Christ is supreme. It doesn't just start once you get older, but there are instructions even and commands for the children to obey their parents in everything. Are you talking about some teaching that can make <laughs> young people a little uncomfortable? Whoa. Now listen, young people that are still in here with me right now, listen up, tune in, because I'm about to do some deep Greek exegesis and theological exposition here. When Paul says in everything, the Greek word that he uses there means everything. Everything. Not just the things we're willing to do, not just the things we want to do, not just what's enjoyable for us, but everything. Children's obedience to the parents is rooted again in the context of this new life in Christ. Their obedience is an outflow of them having internalized the supremacy of Christ and conversely, the commands given by the parents should be an outflow of them having internalized the supremacy of Christ. But even this, in this rather, even in this, the children are to adhere to the greater call of obedience to God. Never are we commanded to do something that goes against what God has commanded. It is always in the context that they are biblically aligned commands. And if there ever should arise a conflict between what parents command children to do, then what God commands trumps all. This, Paul tells us, is well-pleasing to the Lord, which simply means that God is extremely happy when children obey the good and godly commands of their parents. And conversely, he is unhappy when children disobey the good and godly commands of their parents. And I love that Paul's frame of reference for approval is God. He doesn't say, look, uh, kids, if you obey your parents, it's going to make your parents really, really happy. Now, don't get me wrong. Th there is nothing that brings parents more joy than obedient children. Right. But I think that what Paul is doing is he's highlighting an important point. And, and young people hear me on this and, and we cannot. And I remember even as a young person myself fooling myself into thinking that just because my parents didn't know. And just because I got the approval of my little friends who were being disobedient with me, that everything was cool. Paul makes it very clear that our obedience and our disobedience is in full view of the God who sees everything. 
oh, and this scared me to death when my mom told me this, and can bring to light all things that are done in secret. <laughs> Amen. Question number three, children, young people, can others tell that Christ is supreme in your life by how you treat, respond to, or talk to your parents? Verse 21, having just addressed children, Paul now turns his attention to fathers. And in verse 21, he commands them not to provoke their children because it might discourage them. I like what Paul is doing because if you stopped at any one of these verses, you might feel like you're left uncovered. But Paul goes through the whole house. Wives, this is what you should be doing. Husbands, this is what you should be doing. Children, this is what you should be doing. Fathers, here's what you should be doing. No one is left uncovered in a home that recognizes the supremacy of Christ. Again, the cultural context in which Paul is writing here is key, and it becomes apparent in that the command is addressed to fathers. Since in both the Greco-Roman culture and in Jewish culture, the fathers were the ultimate authority in the household. Now, clearly, both parents could provoke their children. Don't, don't, you know, don't misunderstand. But Paul has in mind the dynamics that were at play in the culture that he's writing into. And the idea is, is that fathers should not stir up a child, should not uh, 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 provoke that child, push that child towards anger, towards contentiousness, towards uh, being quarrelsome and being violent. All of that which could lead to, being that, to that child being discouraged and disillusioned with doing ultimately what is pleasing to God and leading to disobedience. Paul says, instead, fathers... We are to nurture and to nourish them in the ways of the Lord hmm. by admonition and by example. It's not enough to just be barking orders. We ought to be able to tell our children like Paul told them, look, follow me as I follow Christ. Hmm. Providing them with what is needed to grow up successfully in the eyes of the Lord. This question is to fathers. Fathers, can others tell that Christ is supreme in your life by how you nurture and nourish your children? Hmm. Paul has dealt with the husband-wife relationship. He's dealt with the father-child relationship. And lastly, he turns his attention to the master-servant dynamic from verses 22 all the way through chapter 4, verse 1. Now, as is the case, when we read scripture, we are likely to run into things that may offend our contemporary sensibilities and hearing, right? And, and I don't want to spend too much time on this point, but suffice it to say, uh, other than to say this, that Paul is writing within the context of a culture of the time, right? And so we can't hear words like slave and master and then import those words into our contemporary context and assign to it the meaning that it generates in our own minds, right? And then get sidetracked by arguments about whether or not Paul was for or against slavery or if he should have been uh, uh, trying to cast down those systems and those kinds of things. Suffice it to say, at least right now, that slavery or bond servanthood in the time of Paul had some similarities with uh, uh, the things that we think about from slavery, but it also differed significantly in other ways. A and that it should not be conflated with the slavery that we think about that is a stain on the conscience of this country. Now with that, having dealt with that, let's kind of push through this. Paul's intent here is not to provide a social commentary. His intent right, uh, is not to provide some amount of critique on the institutions and structures that exist within the society. Instead, he is more concerned with admonishing and encouraging the Colossians to be Christ-like, even within their cultural context. In other words, there may be some practices that need to stop. There may be some policies that indeed need to change, some advocating and some fighting that needs to happen, but that cannot supersede us walking in the fullness of the new life in Christ that we have been called to. To that end, Paul issues commands to both the master and to the slave in the Colossian church of believers. 
first to the slave or to the bondservant, Paul commands obedience to their masters in all things, which echoes the command that he gave to children in obeying their parents in everything. This obedience to masters is not just to be external. It's not just to be uh, uh, what some of our translations say, eye service, meaning that when the master comes around, then they're Johnny on the spot, but when he's gone, they're doing whatever they want to do. But it is to be whether the master is there or not. Paul says that this commitment to obedience, whether the master is in view or not in view, should stem from their fear and reverence of the Lord, not of the master, (laughs) but out of love and respect for the Lord and the desire to ultimately represent him well. Paul knows, right, that connecting our obedience to the one in authority over us means that our obedience will ebb and flow with how we feel about the one in authority over us. When everything's going well, when the boss isn't getting on my nerves, then guess what? I'm handling my business like I should. But as soon as my boss starts acting funny, getting on my nerves, talking uh, uh, about me in ways I don't want, now all of a sudden I'm taking my own liberties, coming in late, taking longer lunches, stealing a handful of uh, paper clips on my way out the door, whatever the case may be. All because my doing right is connected to how I feel about my boss that day. Paul says that when we connect our obedience to the Lord, we're anchoring our obedience in the unchanging, unwavering, trustworthy character and reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he never gives us any legitimate reason to shirk on our responsibilities. Hmm. Further, Paul makes it clear that there are some consequences to obedience and to disobedience. With obedience comes the reward of the inheritance. This isn't talking about a a promotion or a raise, but this is talking about the inheritance that is reserved for us as co-heirs with Christ. This is the new life and eternal life that is promised to us in new creation. But on the other side, with disobedience comes consequences. Now, these consequences, Paul does not describe them in the text. But one thing he does tell us about it, and one thing that we see is that the consequences are handed out without partiality. Meaning that God does not care who you are. If you are being disobedient, there will be consequences. Hmm. Finally, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul addresses the masters commanding them to be just and fair towards the slaves. Now, this is in the same vein as the husbands and the fathers because there is this sense of those who are in authority not abusing that authority, but exercising it in the same way that Christ the King exercises his authority, justly, fairly, mercifully, lovingly, gently. Paul, again, is pushing back against the cultural context, the status quo, and the social social norms of the day. And since, right, there hasn't really been a notion at all of justice for slaves. There's no notion of them being treated fairly because they were assets. They weren't necessarily seen as people per se, but Paul says that for those in Christ, a new way of living and relating is a must. Now, you might be thinking, man, Paul spend about four verses dealing with the slaves, but the masters, he just has this one verse. Treat them justly, treat them fairly. But if you look more closely, what you'll see is that this verse is tied to everything that Paul just talked about previously by this one phrase, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the same Lord in verses 22 through 25 that is the cause and the reason for how the slaves should show up is also the master of the master and has the same expectation of obedience, the same discipline for disobedience, the same expectations for how they are to relate to others that he has for the slaves. Remember, the Lord is the one who doles out these consequences for wrong without partiality, whether you're the slave or the master. 
Question five, and I'm going to put this into our current contemporary context in the workplace. Can others tell that Christ is supreme in our lives by how we do our work and how we treat others? Or would they be surprised if you told them that you attended church, that you were a deacon, that you were an elder, that you, you see what I'm saying? In conclusion, if Christ is supreme, then we should act like it. Internalizing the supremacy of Christ necessitates a new way of living our lives. And this is not evidenced in the grand gestures and events of our lives. It's easy to be Christ-like in big moments. When everybody is watching, when the camera is rolling, when the stakes are high, when the lights are shining, but what about our everyday interactions? You can have all of the latest Christian books. You can have watched every episode of The Chosen. You can be at the church every time the doors are open. You can know scripture forwards and backwards. You can know church history and know apologetics. You can sing in the choir. You can serve as an usher. You can go on missions. You can serve communion. You can set up. You can clean up. You can open up. You can lock up. You can teach the children. You can teach adults. You can even preach on Sunday morning. And still be worldly, fleshly, and sinful in your everyday interactions, all because you have not internalized the supremacy of Christ. To internalize something means to incorporate that thing within yourself, learning and practice and participating in that thing. To internalize the supremacy of Christ means you might have to read God's word outside of Sunday morning. You might have to pray more than just when you're blessing your food. You might have to come to church more than just on Easter, Mother's Day, and Christmas. You might have to turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, pull the AirPods out of your ear, get out of them streets, hmm, leave the office, turn down some overtime, skip leg day at the gym. And get it in with the Lord. And when you're doing that, ask him to take all of this that we've grown up with almost all of our lives. All of this that has become so much tradition and just rote and just habit. And to take it and to then make it real in your heart. Thus, internalizing the supremacy of Christ, so that it shows up in our lives. Amen? Amen. 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 Look, uh, <clears throat> let's uh, have a quick word of prayer, and then we will extend an invitation. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for just the plainness of your word. You just lay it out for us. And we spend so much time trying to do other things and, and find workarounds and, 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 and replace what you have asked us to do. We want you to take our sacrifice that we want to give to you when you have made it clear that this is what you require from us. So God, Help us to move from head knowledge to heart knowledge. God, even as we have gone through this book of Colossians, let us not pat ourselves on the back because we completed a whole book through study. But let us be on our knees praying that what is said of believers, what is said of those who recognize the supremacy of Christ be true about our lives. God, I pray that all those who have heard this or will hear this will ultimately hear from you and that you would invade their lives, God. And don't come in polite. Come in kicking stuff over, knocking things down, establishing your way, God, your way that leads to life, to abundant life 
interrupt, upset the courses that we are on. Grab hold of us, God. Shake us if you have to, to bring us where you want us to be. God, I pray that this word would not leave us alone, that everything that we've been learning through this book of Colossians would just be playing in our minds as your Holy Spirit shines a light in our lives, in our hearts. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week. Where we are not living as though Christ is supreme. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.